Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Shirley Pamponi, Executive Director of the Cooperative Institute for Ocean Exploration, Research, and Technology at Florida Atlantic University. Multi-beam mapping, uh, sub-bottom profiling are all you know ways that we can kind of map the bottom in search of interesting targets on the bottom, whether they're coral reefs or shipwrecks. We'll discuss Western Union telegrams sent from Vero Beach in the 1940s. Back then, that was the only way you could get any messages out. Florida novelist Randy Wayne White, all that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Ariel, listen to me. The human world, it's a mess. Life under the sea is better than anything they got up there. The seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake. You dream about going up there, but that is a big mistake. Just look at the world around you, right here on the ocean floor. Such wonderful things around you. What more is you looking for? Under the sea, under the sea. Darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me. Up on the shore, they work all day. Out in the sun, they slave away. While we've been putting full time to floating under the sea. <laughs> Given the fact that Florida is mostly surrounded by water, coupled with our long history that includes prehistoric settlements and colonization by the Spanish, French, and British, it's not surprising that there are many possible discoveries to be made of shipwrecks and historic objects in our coastal waters. Shirley Pamponi is a research professor at Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute and executive director of the Cooperative Institute for Ocean Exploration, Research, and Technology. Our Cooperative Institute is a cooperation between um, NOAA and specifically the Office of Ocean Exploration and Research and Florida Atlantic University and our partners within the Cooperative Institute. And our partners are the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, University of Miami, and SRI International in St. Petersburg. The focus of our Cooperative Institute, or the themes, if you will, are three. So the first is to explore the outer continental shelf uh, frontiers of the eastern United States, and we focus primarily on the southeastern U.S. and the Gulf of Mexico. The second is to get a better understanding of vulnerable coral and sponge ecosystems. And then the third area is to develop advanced underwater technologies in support of exploration and undersea research. An important part of what the Cooperative Institute for Ocean Exploration, Research, and Technology does is assist with the discovery, recovery, and monitoring of shipwrecks and other historic objects on the ocean floor. The scientific term for these shipwrecks and other objects is submerged cultural resources. 
Susan Pamponi. We're interested in things that are of scientific value, making discoveries that are scientifically valuable or economically valuable, um, or that might have some values if we value if we know about potential hazards, uh, leaking oil, if you will, from a, say from a shipwreck, um, you know, from a more recent shipwreck, uh, but also specifically mentioned in terms of discovery of, of resources is discovery of submerged cultural resources. And so that's a very important component of, of the targets of our, ex, of our missions of exploration. So we want to you know, be, you know, be using advanced underwater technologies to discover, uh, to research, and to monitor these uh, submerged cultural resources. The tools used for scientific research in the ocean and to explore submerged cultural resources are pretty much the same. Both robots and manned submersibles are used to investigate shipwrecks in deep water. Think of the underwater scenes from the film Titanic. The first thing we'll do is go and map an area. So it's a, we, you know, can, let's just assume that this is an area about which we know nothing. And so the first thing you want to do, I mean, you don't want to send a, a manned submersible down there because you might end up in the middle of, you know, nowhere, a big abyssal plain, which is, might be scientifically interesting for some aspects of research. But if you're looking for a shipwreck, you're going to waste a lot of time. So the first thing that you do is you you do some mapping and the way we map is you know we use a variety of techniques but multi-beam mapping uh, sub-bottom profiling are all you know ways that we can kind of map the bottom in search of interesting targets on the bottom whether they're coral reefs or shipwrecks and so multi-beam mapping is one that's gotten you know it's it's, it's a fairly uh, a standard approach that we use and it'll it'll give you some sometimes uh, well oftentimes uh, you know maps of areas that you might want to go back and explore further so you might see something that looks on this multi-beam map like it's a shipwreck um, so the hard, the lo- the older the wreck is the more difficult it is to interpret that and so then the next thing you would do is you would send down say a, um, an autonomous underwater vehicle a robot that has say a video camera on it or a a high def camera on it and take photos of that particular area that looked like it had an interesting uh, sonar target on it, a multi-beam sonar target on it. And then you could say, oh yeah, okay, that looks like we want to explore that even further. A lot of times for shipwrecks that might be enough. You might get enough information from that photo survey to, to confirm that in fact it is a shipwreck. Now, if you're an archaeologist, just knowing that it's down there isn't going to be enough. So now you're going to want to go down and do more research. And if you want to do go down and do more research, you want to be able to kind of manipulate things. So the autonomous underwater vehicles or AUVs are good for the mapping and the surveys and taking pictures and even taking measurements. You can put sensors on there that will measure, say, for a more recent shipwreck, if there's oil leaking from that. So you can determine if there's any hazard. But really, if you want to start doing you know, studying the the shipwreck, doing some manipulations, recovering artifacts, getting a better idea of how you know how much that 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 shipwreck has deteriorated. You're going to need to use other vehicles that give you some manipulative abilities. So those would be remotely operated vehicles because they've got video cameras on them and mult and uh, manipulator arms. Or if you're lucky enough to be able to use. Uh, uh, manned submersible, a human-occupied vehicle, you can go down and do, do more work as well. Dr. Pamponi explains that in shallower water, skilled technical divers using mixed gases can provide even more of a hands-on approach to undersea exploration. 
Divers were used for the first major project that Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute participated in, the partial recovery of the USS Monitor. The first ironclad warship commissioned by the United States Navy, the USS Monitor was put into service in 1862. After participating in several successful Civil War battles, the Monitor sank in a heavy storm off of Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, on December 31, 1862. The ship was discovered on the ocean floor in 1973. And it was discovered uh, by um, a group from Duke University and using a, a magnetometer on one of the Duke University research vessels. And then they found this object on the bottom. And in the meantime, then went back and did more surveys. NOAA uh, became interested in, in, in this submerged cultural resource. Uh, and by 1977, um, there was a, a group that... Uh, uh, NOAA chartered the, our research vessel, uh, Johnson, and the Johnson Sea Link manned submersible and uh, used the submersible to go down and actually visually inspect this, um, the, uh, the shipwreck, the monitor shipwreck. So that was the first time that any humans had seen this uh, shipwreck, you know, in person on the bottom. So that began then a series of expeditions that occurred from 1977 on, um, and the last expedition that uh, Harbor Branch made uh, on the monitor was in 2002, and in 2002 there had been enough work that had been done and recovery of a number of artifacts from the monitor, and by 2002, after a lot of planning, NOAA and the Navy had developed a plan to recover the the gun turret. And, and I, I think part of the reason for that is that it was a very unique design for this gun turret. And, and the decision was made that it would be a lot more valuable to, to learn more about the, the history of this, uh, you know, of, of this type of warfare and the design by having that turret back up where it could be conserved and studied. The USS Monitor's engine, propeller, guns, and gun turret are now on display at the Mariner's Museum in Newport News, Virginia. Recovery of the gun turret, which is 20 feet in diameter and 9 feet high, was complicated by the fact that when the monitor was discovered, it was upside down on the ocean floor. Dr. Pamponi says there is some interesting speculation as to why the ship was found in that position. During World War II, so before it was discovered, the monitor was discovered where it was, um, it, there was there's some uh, thought that the reason the ship is in the state that it's in is that it was discovered on um, sonar and it was thought to be a submarine. And so depth chargers may have been uh, you know, yeah, deployed and it, that they were trying to figure out, to try and account for why it was in the condition that it was in. Uh, that may not have been accounted for just by by the you know by the way it landed on the bottom. So there was there's some speculation that during World War II, uh, the Navy deployed depth charges uh, there because they thought it was a, a German uh, submarine. Technological advancements since 2002 are allowing researchers at Harbor Branch and elsewhere greater opportunities for remote, real-time participation in projects such as the exploration and recovery of the USS Monitor. Students and the general public can also benefit from telepresence-enabled ocean exploration. Not all of us are going to be able to do technical diving. We're not going to be able to get permits to go down and dive that deep. But 
to be able to use this as a tool to te- to you know telepresence uh, technology as a tool to engage others in the excitement of exploration conservation of of the wrecks recovery of artifacts not only on the monitor but in other re- on other wrecks as well and currently the best way to do that is to put an, a remotely operated vehicle on the bottom has enough power it's powered through a tether that's attached to the ship and can beam in real time video images back to the ship and then from the ship via satellite to your computer monitor so it's a it's an it's an exciting development and it's a way that that are are you know explorers of tomorrow as well as uh, you know students of all ages and and people just interested in exploration can participate in these missions of exploration whether it's on a deep coral reef or a canyon in the mid-atlantic region or or a wreck from the you know the 1600s dr pamponi says that plans are underway to make the harbor branch oceanographic institute an important command center for telepresence enabled ocean exploration the technology has been developed it's already uh, there are what's called exploration command centers uh, that are set up um, primarily primarily in the northeast although there's one at stennis uh, uh, naval base in um, mississippi But we're going to be putting one here at Harbor Branch as well. Now, we can already um, participate in these exploration missions just using the Internet. But having an Exploration Command Center allows you to actually communicate on a much easier basis and rather than doing it kind of on a chat room to actually be able to talk to the scientists that's on the ship. And so we expect to have that in place by next next summer. we are also developing a course, an upper-level undergraduate or graduate-level course that's called telepre- that'll be called something like telepresence-enabled ocean exploration, so that we can t- teach the next generation of of oceanographers how to use this technology for exploration. And again, we're hoping to have that course developed. We're going to be going up to uh, the Inner Space Center at the University of Rhode Island for the explore to to participate in the. July mission to the Mid-Atlantic Canyons and kind of get some feel for how this works with an Exploration Command Center so we can better develop our uh, command center here. Once that's developed, uh, we expect to be able to provide programming uh, not only during the Okeanos Explorer missions, but also missions that Harbor Branch is conducting on deep coral reefs as well. So it'll be used more broadly, used and available to you know to our to you know to our friends of Harbor Branch and to the the general public as well. Dr. Shirley Pamponi is a research professor at Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute and executive director of the Cooperative Institute for Ocean Exploration, Research, and Technology. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Established in 1856, the Florida Historical Society provides educational outreach throughout the state. While our focus is on the past, we utilize the latest technology to educate the public about Florida history. Visit our website at myfloridahistory.org, and while you're there, click on the Join Now button to support our efforts. Join the conversation on Facebook as well at Florida Historical Society. Things went wrong today, bad news came away. I woke up to find what I had in my mind. Western Union man, bad news in his hand. Knocking at my door, selling me a score. Fifteen cents a word to read, a telegram I didn't need. Says she doesn't care no more, think I'll throw it on the floor. Got your cable just today, kill my groove, I've got to say. Today, text messaging and email have replaced letters and telegrams as preferred forms of written communication. Janie Gould talks with a woman who worked in a Western Union telegram office in the 1940s. Before affordable phone calling and way before email, people sent Western Union telegrams when they had news to share. For more than three decades, starting in the 1940s, Hilda Harbort ran the Western Union office in Vero Beach. She was involved in everything, including a fiscal report she sent to headquarters in Atlanta every week. It had to be penny perfect. I had three or four operators. In the wintertime, they would send one or two operators in from up north to help out with doing the work. Because back then, that was the only way you could get any messages out. People didn't have a telephone. And if they had to wire money, they could come into our office and wire the money. During a really busy day in the winter in the 1940s, how many telegrams would come and go from your office, approximately? I would say probably 150 that we would send out. During the war, I guess you received some pretty sad telegrams at times. Yes, we did. In fact, I received a telegram that Stan's brother was captured out in Korea. Stan Harbert is Hilda's husband. His brother was released after six months. Hilda remembers the jubilation in Vero Beach, which had a naval air station, when World War II ended in Europe. When they declared peace in Europe, the whole airport where the people were stationed out there, they let them come in town and there was hooting and howling and they were celebrating that the war was over. Where were you? At the Western Union office. She worked at Dodgertown when the Dodgers were in Vero for spring training. The Western Union office was right next to the office of club owner Walter O'Malley. We would transmit all the telegrams that the writers would send. Mr. and Mrs. O'Malley would come into my office there and pat me on the back. Hilda, get busy. we got a lot of telegrams to send. When Japan sent their team over here, we had to transmit all of those telegrams It was transferred from Japanese into long words of our alphabet. When you transmitted that stuff, you had to concentrate and do every letter. 
You couldn't skip on anything. I'd have to work till one, two o'clock in the morning to get their Japanese information done. What was the most exciting message you ever sent or received? Well, the most exciting was when I was sent up to Cape Canaveral for the moonshot. The government took care of us. We had to spend the night before the shot went off in a motel. The government picked us up as you went into the security center where the big shots were. They stopped us at the gate and they completely searched us. I could not carry a purse or anything. Chet Hunkley and David Brinkley was right next door in their trailer. You were still using teletype at that point? Yes. At the time, they hollered, get out here, get out here, it's going to go off. I was transmitting one to Italy. When Hilda Harbort retired from Western Union in the 1970s, she decided to take a lump sum payment rather than a pension. Believe this or not, the lump sum that I got paid for our son's four-year college at the Citadel. Would you rather send a message today to him, let's say, by Western Union or by email? We don't have a computer. We talk to him on the phone. We have a flat rate, and we can talk hours and hours and hours, and we do that all the time. Hilda and Stan Harbert still live in Vero Beach. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Florida novelist Randy Wayne White depicts the natural Florida in his mysteries and promotes a sense of place. Bill Dudley talks with the author about his work and the history surrounding his own home. If you write about two characters in Florida, you necessarily have very, you have to write about three very powerful characters, three, because the state of Florida is a very powerful character. Novelist Randy Wayne White. In recent years, he's emerged as one of the leaders in the popular genre of Florida crime mystery fiction. He says he grew up reading Joseph Conrad, John Steinbeck, and Mark Twain, held a variety of jobs, and traveled the world before beginning a full-time novel writing career in the late 1980s. Well, I'd been a fishing guide on Sanibel Island for almost 13 years. I was a full-time fishing guide and did more than 3,000 charters. I was on the water 300 days a year. And in 1987, uh, the federal government came to our little marina at Tarpon Bay, which I called Dinkins Bay in the books, and said, Tarpon Bay is now closed to powerboat traffic. Well, I was out of a job. And I had two young sons, 10 and 8 at the time, and uh, I'm not qualified to do anything. I didn't go to college. And they came to us in January of 1987, told us the marina would close in March. It's one of the best things that ever happened to me. White had been a travel writer for Outside Magazine and had even written a series of novels under a pseudonym. Now he began a new project under his own name, starring an unassuming marine biologist named Marion Doc Ford. When I decided to write a novel, I wanted the protagonist, the main character, to, to live in the water. So when you live in the water, what do you do? 
I just and I love biology and natural history. Always have, so I, he became a biologist, which is a great blessing for me because I, the research I learned so much. Beginning in 1990 with Sanibel Flats, his first few novels quickly established White as a writer with an environmental consciousness. But unlike some of his contemporaries, environmental advocacy doesn't always mean taking a political stand. First of all, I don't know enough to preach anything to anyone. But I've also spent my life traveling. I've been in almost every third world hell you can think of. I've seen the worst places in the world. And the first casualty of a failed economy is the environment. It troubles me that a number of so-called environmentalists don't realize how important private enterprise is to the environment. If our economy fails, the environment's gone. Look at Haiti. That's, a, I mean, that's an obvious example. Look at Cuba. Uh, look at Vietnam. They're fighting back right now, trying to recover the economy. Look at Cambodia. Now, the other side is that if you make every concession to private enterprise, but the environment fails, it's the same thing. We all fail. Uh, there is a line there. And so I don't have a lot of patience for zealots on either side. I think they're closed books. White's novels have sometimes been compared with those of the legendary John D. MacDonald. Both make extensive use of coastal and wetland environments. In fact, over the last century, a host of writers have used Florida's waters as settings for mystery novels, according to Rollins College professor of literature, Morris O'Sullivan. All the early mysteries were about the water, the secret of the Everglades, Mystery Island, the boy chums cruising Florida waters. We've almost always seen the water as an important metaphor for our life. It's part of what attracts us to it. And I think especially in Randy Wayne White, what he does better than almost anyone else other than John D. MacDonald is to find in the water and people's approach to the water a metaphor for the nature of society and corruptions in the ecosystem become reflections of corruptions in our political and economic and social system. White lives and works in an 80-year-old house built atop a shell mound, once part of a temple complex of the Calusa, the powerful tribe who ruled much of southwest Florida in the years before the Europeans came. Although he's contributed to efforts to preserve the surviving archaeological sites nearby, the author admits he hasn't directly felt the presence of these ancient spirits. I'm not a very spiritual person. But I'm also, I think I'm pragmatic to the point where I find it hugely valuable and powerful to know that where I write, which is right there in that porch, that at that precise place, that for almost 3,000 years, people have been telling stories right there. People have been sitting around fires and telling stories and singing songs and essentially what I do right now here, that's powerful. Meanwhile, if a lifetime of travel and adventure has given White the bearing of a man with stories to tell, the success of his books has contributed to the satisfaction felt by one who's living his version of the Florida dream. You know, I grew up loving books. I love the way they feel, the smell, that, and the density of a book. You pick up a book and there's some, there's an implication of great potential. I wasn't a good student, but I loved reading and I thought if I could write a book, then Maybe I could participate in that magic I found in books. Novelist Randy Wayne White. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. 
Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.